0: I don't think you'd do very well with a public offering where you went to market and said, hey guys, we're, we might fail in the next 10 years and we've uncovered 10 big reasons why that will be true. Please give us your money.
1: And welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 128. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu, and in studio with me is the consummate co-host, Musa Kalenga. What's up, bruv? Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing, Andile? Chillo, I was a little stressed. Uh, on the run a bit, uh, we had some technical glitches uh, <laughs> getting the session coming together but i'm uh i'm well thank you
2: never a dull day hey in studio
1: (laughs) never a dull day and of course we're not alone uh we have a special guest on the show today none other than the entrepreneur investor incurable blockchain technology fanatic and good friend of the show simon dingle welcome back simon
2: (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me, Simon. 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 <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Good to hear. Good to hear you again, Simon. <laughs>
0: yeah, good to hear you guys again too. On, yeah, man.
1: joining us from Cape Town, of course. Thank you so much for for holding it down in Cape Town. We need good people out there, man. <laughs>
0: yeah. They seem to be uh, fewer <laughs> and further between. Well, at least that's what that's what we're led to believe, and I, I don't think it's true.
1: Even if. You- Even if you say so yourself. (laughs) Well, listen, Simon, we're trying something new on the show. We normally highlight several ecosystem happenings before we jump into a discussion topic, but we're kind of changing things up. Starting on this episode, our in-studio recordings will only cover three. Yes, folks, just three items. Wow. Uh, We want to, you know, we want to give ourselves a chance to discuss things more thoroughly. And uh, today we're asking three questions, and two of them are framed with you in mind, Simon, because I know how popular your live Q and A sessions are, mm. and so we thought mm, you said we thought we'd uh, toss you a f- some some bones to, to nibble on in public hearing. I think I almost <laughs> said in public view.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: So what could yeah, possibly go wrong. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely nothing. It's only been half an hour of trying to get the sound to work. Um, so yes, I hope it, it's all sort of downhill from here, um or uphill, depending what you consider good um yeah. so anyway, the three things we'll talk about, like I said, and first, we'll be talking about how jumia's listing on the New York Stock Exchange is a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, I suppose the question there is what kind of a thing is it, folks. Um, secondly, of course, we we have to ask: Is blockchain technology as full safe as we've been led to believe? And of course, third and uh, finally, we'll be you know unpacking uh, a pretty uplifting story, depending how you look at it, depending what all the uh, nuances of that story turn out to be. The first black woman to raise over one million dollars in a secure token offering—none uh, other than Dawn Dixon, the founder of Popcom. Well. We have Simon here to talk us through that one and um, answer any questions we might have about how excited to be about that particular development. But before we get into all that, let's do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the fourth annual Afrobytes Marketplace that's taking place in Paris on Wednesday, the 15th of May, 2019. It's going down at Station F, the world's biggest startup campus. Now, Afrobytes Paris is Europe's preeminent gathering of Africa-focused business and technology leaders, founders, investors, innovation architects, and policymakers. Yes, folks, preeminent. I said it. And of course, we at African Tech Roundup are pleased to be teaming up with Team Afrobytes for the third consecutive year. And we're super excited to be extending You Our Village a handy 25% discount on tickets to the event using the offer code ATRU and all you have to do is head to africantechroundup.com forward slash afrobytes2019 that's africantechroundup.com forward slash afrobytes2019 afrobytes spelled A-F-R-O-B-Y-T-E-S 2019 head there to book your seat right now and we can't wait to see you there With all that said, uh, let's just warm ourselves up, folks, uh, by asking uh, what you guys are reading right now. Musa, what's up?
2: Well, I'm rereading a book, which I think everyone should uh, should try and get a copy of when they can. It's, uh, it's called Sapiens um, by Yuval Harari. I'm probably saying that very wrong, but uh, effectively he's a historian, um a Jewish historian that's been effectively documenting how kind of humanity and mankind have evolved over the years. Um, and the premise for the book ultimately is kind of at some stage we were, as human beings, food for dinosaurs. And now we are the top of the food chain. And he goes through why this has come to be and the kind of things that we need to do to preserve humanity. So he's got a series of books, but uh, I'm rereading Sapiens, and I think it's a fantastic read.
1: Yeah, that happens to be one of uh, one of Simon's favorite books, right? Simon. Ah.
0: Yeah, I loved Sapiens. Um, I haven't read his, his other two yet. Homo Deus has been on my bedside table for like two years, and I still haven't read it. Me um,
2: and <laughs> <laughs> you both, I'll, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll get there eventually. And yeah, he's got so a new one happen- out. Something, something for the 21st century. It seems like every book is on Oh, yes.
2: Now. That's right. It's, yeah, someone told me about that. It's uh, 21 questions for the 21st century. There like we that. go something like that yes yeah no but (laughs) he's he's a great author i think that's the that's the that's the key take out here is that he's got some challenging theories um Mm. about a lot of interesting things so i think if you want to stretch the way you think about stuff um but Mm. also what i really enjoy about him is his his historical view and his grasp of you know historical occurrences you know the famous saying you gotta know where you come from to know where you're going as a human race so i think i quite enjoy that view on the world that he has
1: I'm glad you used the word theory because I've read uh, most of the first book and some of the second book and I don't dig him nearly as much as you guys do. I don't buy into most of his theories, but hey, like you say, if you want to stretch your mind and you want to know what's out there and what Simon and Musa think is dope, go ahead and read that. Otherwise, I'll dig into the uh, Seth Godin book, This Is Marketing, and that's what I'm into right now. And um, yeah, I'm quite enjoying that. I'm listening to it as an audio book. He should have gotten someone else to read the book, if I'm honest. But um, I've what gotten quite a, a lot out of that book. Uh, this is marketing by Seth Godin, his latest. What, what One, is the book
2: about? Andy, left you. Don't mind telling us. It's basically him reducing
1: everything he believes marketing to be and uh, into a single volume. Okay. Uh, he borrows ideas from every book he's written on the topic, people he respects in the world today who speak on the topic, factor in into that book. Uh, basically, he's. He's saying listen I've thought marketing was xyz over the years and now I'm pretty certain it is everything I'm putting in this book <laughs> <I> <laughs> which see. is a, a pretty bold claim uh, to make but when you're Seth Godin I suppose you can get a, you can get away with it and uh, he's he he comes right in many respects uh, a lot of things that would resonate with you Musa a lot of things that are pretty in, in, instinctive to the way you you approach marketing and purpose and infusing things that matter into you know, what you do for a living as opposed to just, you know, sell, sell, sell
0: and, and that kind of thing. So, got it. I, I enjoyed it for that reason. But, Simon, what are you reading? Uh, what am I reading? I'm reading Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, which is um, the biography of Richard Feynman, who, of course, was the, the legendary uh, physicist, made um, just great contributions, especially in the field of, of quantum science. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'm reading. Cool,
1: absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. Our voices are warm. You have three very, very different things uh, to get stuck into, if you so please, or we'll just ignore our recommendations, what we're reading right now. Do what you like, fam. Without any further ado, let's jump into the three questions of the day. Starting with the very first one is listing on the New York Stock Exchange, unless you've been living under a rock, you would have heard about what is, as far as IPOs go, easily a home run for the team at Jumia who have sold this as the listing of quote-unquote Africa's first tech unicorn. And so I suppose the question is, what kind of a thing is it? Well, that depends. If you're part of the gang who've been talking about this on Twitter as part of team hashtag Jumia is not African, then you're pretty upset at the notion that this company that is essentially registered in Germany has basically announced itself to the world in this manner and uh, leverage very heavily brand Africa. So guys, I put it to you. What do you make of this whole debate? You know, you've, you've obviously viewed what everyone's been saying on Twitter. You've read some of the think pieces that have led up to the listing. Musa, you've been here for some of the debates we've had here about, you know, questions around is VC a, a sort of Ponzi scheme? Is this undue capture of value without actual business value being created and and other such issues so given everything you guys have read about this and viewed on the ground what do you make of this maybe let's start with you simon
0: yeah i mean it's 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 always interesting to see a listed company and the perceptions that emerge post listing and and what that does to to the value because of course none of us can predict the future so we absolutely have no idea whether or not the value that the the trading of this stock currently is predicated on is going to actually emerge in the future, um, but uh, just looking at the pattern, I mean, this is a this is a company that's been running at a loss so far, from what I can tell, um, and and the comments about its uh, you know its potential in the future remind me of the early days of Amazon, for example, where they were running at massive losses, um, but were still compelling. You know, large amounts of money to to come into the company via their public offering, and a lot of investors very cynically saying, "There's just no value here. They're not going to pull it off." Um, and of course, we know that that's not true, and and, and Amazon is what it is today. I think Alibaba have kind of had a similar sort of uh, pattern. So, so it's uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting to think of an e-commerce giant in Africa and what that means. I think for one, if you look at uh, you know companies like Alibaba and Amazon, they they're fairly focused on. On singular markets where, as, as, as I think is, has been a theme on the show before, um, the world out there too often talks about Africa in one voice as if it's a single country and as if all Africans have the same challenges and you know, <laughs> um, cultures, etc. But I think running e-commerce in Nigeria, for example, is entirely different from running e-commerce in Kenya to South Africa to Ghana to you name it. So it's kind of interesting seeing analysts talk about Africa in one breath as if, you know, the, the success or failure of a Jumia is going to depend on this massive continent all acting in, in a singular way. And of course, there are other players who are looking at the continent too. I think, uh, you know, I can't speak for, for them, but but I get the impression that Takealot is eyeing the continent and trying to see what it can do outside of South Africa's borders. So it's, a, it's an interesting space. And I think if you're looking for growth in Africa, e-commerce is an obvious place to look. I think we're in for a very exciting 10 years when it comes to that.
1: So let's put some numbers to some of what you said. By the end of December last year, the accumulated losses at Jumia were 862 million euro. I have a question for, for, for you, Musa, which is I've just watched the, the HBO documentary, The Inventor, all about the Theranos thing. And um, it was interesting, you know, the, the parallels that were drawn between that particular story and the story of someone like Thomas Edison, who very famously, uh, depending how you look at it, was extremely bullish about his potential and the potential of the ventures he, he birthed or completely a charlatan because as simon says no one can predict the future but at some point it's dishonest to sell you know fairy tales one yeah. assumes which is it here so I, I And, where, th- and where, do, where does that line, where, where would you place that line?
2: I mean, where I do agree with uh, with Simon is that uh, posting losses is no indicator of future success. That I think is a, is, is an important thing to understand. Um, losses um, may be indicative of an aggressive investment strategy to try and capture future value. So um, I think that could lead us down the road of thinking that that's directly related to future success, which it isn't. So I think if we're going to try and identify whether this is a fairy tale or whether this is real, uh, for me, the, the statement, you know, e-commerce giant in Africa versus African e-commerce giant are two very different statements um, and for me if it's going to become more real there's lots of things that need to be considered around how they've approached their market in terms of building a business model that pays respect to the African ecosystem and once again I'm using Africa very liberally um, you know Africa in the context of did you come into different markets east west south or north um, have you been able to build a bottom up solution that's going to be ultimately more sustainable because for me that is where the reality of this fairy tale and inverted commerce. you know that's where, that's where the rubber hits the road. The second thing is where does the value then accrue to? If you think about impact, um, you know, is the value ultimately being created get reinvested into the, into the regions of our continent where the value is being created or is the value simply leaving the shores of our continent? Um, and for me, that's a big uh, important uh, question that needs to be asked. And, uh, ultimately you, with those two views, I think you're able to bring the story back into reality as opposed to viewing it as quite polar in terms of the fact that they've come in and they've had, you know, a, a moderate degree of success. Um, um, and they're in a position now where they've listed and the listing is giving us all the positive indicators for future growth. Um I'm asking questions around, you know, the actual impact and the actual commitment to this continent that they're investing in.
1: Okay, so the facts are they're only in 19 markets. Um some would argue barely in 19 markets because their performance in in all 19 is, is questionable at best and yeah. but but then there's also the side of things where we know that in order to frame this Africa wide or pan African narrative necessitated them being in market, whether or not, you know, they're doing well. So, my question is I suppose, comes down to whether or not we trust the intentions and the quality of. The leadership at a place like Jumia, and I mean, my straight question to you, Simon, is: Do you trust it enough to invest in it yourself?
0: Oh, I, I know absolutely nothing about their leadership and who they are and their background, and so so. I my golden rule is: I'll only invest in things I understand, or I will ask somebody to invest on my behalf that I trust in things that they understand. So, uh, I don't. Which leads know. me to which leads me to another point. Simon which is exactly what I believe
1: is kind of dodgy about their use of the notion of the African Amazon in trying to sell this thing. Yeah. They know full well that the vast majority of us make decisions, investment decisions in in exactly the way you do. At least those of us who, you know, have any experience investing, right? Mm. And and so they know the power of of the story they've told. Yeah. And and so from that standpoint is it a responsible story, given how something like a Jumia could go really badly or really well?
0: I mean, any new business is is probably going to fail, unfortunately. Um, the vast majority of new businesses fail and fail fairly spectacularly and quickly but you know you can't build a business on that I don't know of a successful cynic who's done anything (laughs) other than successfully um, being very cynical about other people's projects but you can you can only do something meaningful from a, a positive perspective so of course you need to tell the market that you're going to succeed and why um, and they've tapped into the right opportunity, that's for sure. I think whether it's Jumi or somebody else, um, there's a lot of value to be unlocked on the continent as we sort out the challenges that have faced e-commerce here before. Uh, because I, I don't think the the challenges are that overwhelming. I mean, socioeconomics aside, everybody talks about the last mile and how delivery is a problem in Africa because you know we have issues like address. Uh, you know, uh, finding people on the map is is a challenge. And that's just, I mean, to sort that out is is you don't have to think for longer than a few seconds to come up with projects like What3Words, um, which have assigned three English words and, 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 and it's available in other languages as well to every square three meters on the surface of the planet. So um, you combine that with mobile phone technology, which is fairly ubiquitous in just about any African economy, and your last mile problem is is almost solved. You now just need the logistics to, to, get, a, to get a package to that point. So... I, I I I'm a massive believer that, that e-commerce in, in Africa over the next ten years is gonna be is, is gonna be such an, an astronomical um, opportunity. But but again, you know, if, if if you're a junior telling that story, their ability to deliver on that opportunity, who knows? I, I get the suspicion that you'll have successful smaller players focusing on niche markets. You know, for example, you'll have an e-commerce player in, I don't know, let's say Tanzania that are sorting out the challenges that face that particular market and are able to do so with more efficiency and agility and wherewithal and know-how than a big company trying to tackle 20 African markets at the same time. So, And then, of course, later we'll see some consolidation. That's what happened with Amazon. It's happening with Alibaba. Um, you know, Amazon had uh, went on an acquisition spree and, and bought all sorts of businesses that were niche e-commerce providers in North America doing a very good job and then just got those teams to rebrand as Amazon and do the very good job for the, the big corporate. So I think that's what'll happen in, in Africa. So if, so if I had to make a very sort of uh, off the top of my head, uninformed prediction, I would say that Jumia will, will have mild success in the short term. And if it can, if it can, you know, raise the kind of capital it needs and and go on that consolidation path to start buying up the smaller niche players in each market, then then there's, there's a massive future for the company.
1: Look, they've already been doing that. I do think that there's, um, to me personally, I'd hope that they position for acquisition by like an Alibaba or an Amazon, but that's just me. Musa, I mean, there there clearly seems to be an insatiable appetite in the US for profit-taking via PR-engineered big-ticket investment opportunities. So Jumia would not be the first. Yeah. Um, It certainly won't be the last. But call me old school. I'm not a fan of speculation that doesn't adequately account for objective realities or actual business value. I guess that puts me solely in the bucket of of people, Simon, who… Are, are are fully okay with sitting there not and not allowing things to happen. But I, I think that's definitely an extreme of people who think the way I do. But I do think there's there's those of us who feel that there is a middle ground for being able to be bullish and and courageous and contrarian but also sort of pragmatic and uh, and
0: uh, and prudent. So oh, absolutely. If- and 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 just sorry, just to to clarify what I meant. Um, you know, as a leader of a business, you need to you need to move up and down that spectrum as well. When you're dealing with a team internally and when you're when you're strategizing and, and developing your own plans, you you absolutely need that blend. All I meant was when you go to the market and you talk about what you're going to do, you know, you you don't expose them to all the reasons you've uncovered internally for why why you're going to fail necessarily. Uh you need to go to the you know you need to go to market with a with a, a unified front and you and you need to tell a very positive story about why you're going to succeed. I don't I don't think you'd do very well with a public offering where you went to market and said, hey guys, we we might fail in the next ten years and we've uncovered ten big reasons why that will be true. Please give us your money.
2: <laughs> I think that another interesting view, uh, you know, maybe on. Uh, On on the leadership, I mean, just an observation slightly from, you know, from a different point of of, of departure is, you know, a big part of the companies that are going to succeed in in, in the future um, will be those that have high performance teams that are super diverse in nature and if you look at the founding team, you know, Jeremy, Sasha, Tunde, and, and, and Raphael, and you and you look at the profile of individuals that are leading the organization, I, I ask the question around, uh, around diversity and inclusion for their strategy as a leadership team, and how well they're poised to, to compete in the future. I mean, yes, we know they appointed a, f- a female CEO uh, in Nigeria, Juliet uh, Anana, but I mean, the reality of it at your core as a team that's trying to po- position yourself for growth in the retail sector in Africa, do they believe, or do I believe, when I look at the business, um, that they have the leadership chops to be able to do that. And yes, they're McKinsey consultants, which is great. Um, but back to that problem around mm. ecos- ecosystem solving from the bottom. Do I believe the leadership team will be able to do that? And that's where I've got a big question mark around it. Um, I think, you know, if the core of the business, um, and this is the you know, this is really the call to action for value creators in our continent in this century, if the core of the business um, are that far removed from some of the issues they're trying to solve for, there's always for me a question mark around how um, how well suited will the solutions be that they come up with? So, as I said, a slightly different view around 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 the con- uh, the, the assembly of their leadership team um, from a diversity and a and a and a and a, um, uh, and a skill and capacity point of view. But I think it's something that we shouldn't miss if we're going to try and hang our hats on. Do we believe they're equipped to succeed or not?
1: And I suppose, look, the the whole hashtag is Jumia African thing. I mean, you know, a lot of the fury on on social media, I think, kind of misses the point about you know, what's truly important or at least what's truly pertinent if we're going to progress as a continent. Yep. Uh, and I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I do feel that one of the biggest arguments against the notion that Jumia isn't African is the fact that MTN owns 30% of that business. I do worry, you know, to the point you're making, Musa, uh, about the expectations we place on people who go to market with, we know Africa, we, claiming, we're we yeah. going to win here. Absolutely. You know, uh, on, on actually being able to deliver on that. But, uh, you know, let me draw you guys' attention to the fact that uh, Word on the Street, at least according to the Business Day um, here in South Africa, a pretty reputable publication, Word on the Street is that um, MTN is pretty much ready to offload their interest in Jumia. And I suppose... To me, it validates the notion that, you know, the system might be broken and we might have to have a discussion about that in the sense that we do have a system that seems to reward the perpetuation of a really good story without actual business value being created. Wouldn't you at least uh, admit to that, Simon, in the sense that. If you frame whatever story you're telling well enough to the level of acceptability of any market, let's say the New York Stock Exchange in this case, where it's trending at the moment to to sort of invest in in, in the space speculatively, isn't that overall unhealthy for us as an ecosystem one
0: and overall as you know a world? Yeah, I, I mean that, that just very quickly becomes a philosophical argument about um, growth for its own sake and public offerings and whether the entire notion of um, you know of, of 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 equity in a company that has to somehow magically grow, even when there's no market to grow into every year, is is sustainable and healthy. I. Yeah, I, I don't know if, 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 if we can get into that one. But I, I, look, I I don't think I've disagreed with anything either of you have said. Um, I, I know that I don't know anything about the leadership of Jumia. None of us knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Um, mm. But but just having built businesses and fund, funded businesses myself and worked with startups that are raising funds and, and going to market, you have to put your best foot forward. You have to be positive. If you're a if you're a listed entity, it's very unlikely that you're doing anything dodgy in terms of being illegal. Um, the ethics of of big business is a is a broader question. But you know, you, you you don't just go to the New York Stock Exchange or or another boss and and get them to list you because you feel like now it. now now <laughs> now Simon,
1: you you should know better than that. I mean, 2008 was a thing, buddy.
0: Yeah, and so was Steinhoff, and and there've, there've been spots like that. So so again, if if we if we want to talk more broadly about the 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 philosophy of big business, I you know, I think the the growth imperative. Is is one of the most disastrous things that's ever happened to the planet. Um, never mind. Thank you, Simon. This is what I want yeah. to hear from you, bro. No, but, I mean, but not to force you into that point. But I mean, that's that's, that's a, really what I'm going. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm gunning for. Dude, yeah. I'm with you, and we can we can do a whole series of podcasts about, about that. But but that's sort of the the macro view of the market. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that means for Jumia as such. If you know what I mean, um, <laughs> because because I don't know what their ethics are like. I, I don't know what their leadership team is made of. I you know I just don't know enough about about their reality.
1: So, Musa, my issue with the whole African unicorn narrative here is the fact that in this whole debate, no one's talking about, you know, other big companies that make moves in the space, even here on the continent. So very rarely is sort of Naspers and what they're doing or not doing in the space referenced alongside what, you know, Jumia has decided to do or hasn't decided to do. Um, No one really references, for example, Econet, a business that is technically almost a unicorn by revenue, folks, by revenue, not by some arbitrary sort of assigning of value, right? So I feel like the problem with this whole Africa is now at the New York Stock Exchange, you know, by (laughs) proxy, because Jumia has landed. My issue with that is, On one hand, I have to admit, it'll make it easier for for real future prospects in African markets to sort of garner investor attention. Great. I'm so glad that this is putting us on the map in a way we haven't done before. But by many metrics, Jumia is technically almost entirely a speculative investment. And there will be a bubble at some point, as the cycle will demand. And at that point, all those sexy speculative valuations will go out the window. And the only thing that will weather the storm is cold, hard business fundamentals, and right now, the African story is hinged on look at Jumia, and I have a problem with brand Africa being solely represented by the story, and perhaps that 's not a jumia problem it 's probably more what we all need to do to contribute to the narrative
2: maybe what do you think musa i 'll tell you a funny anecdote um, you know South Africa is an interesting place, and when i when I was spending a lot of time um, in Nigeria, I remember the Invitations that used to go out for big fancy corporate events um, never used to write on the event that you need to dress up in African attire. I only ever saw that happening in South Africa when you were actually you were you were told to dress up as an African. Now, this notion around the disclaimer to show up as an African business or as African person is actually even more pronounced when there's a root of question. In the fact that you believe that you're African or not, if that makes sense, um, if you juxtapose that against what you've put out in terms of owning a narrative around this, you know, this listed company that happens to be African, uh, that shouldn't be the way they are positioning to sell this thing. That shouldn't be a that actually should be a non. It, it's a non. Um, uh, it's it's a non proposition if they were truly an African business, uh, and hence that's why it smacks of what you're saying to be um, uh, almost taken advantage of a positioning to be able to. To get the value and the benefit of the value in a listing. And that's the irresponsible thing about when you use that positioning and you're not actually rooted in the continent with a view to be able to develop the continent. So I tend to agree with you there, but I do once again, I, I think there's a lot more to be considered because back to what you were saying, there's some cold hard facts regarding their success. There's some, be- um, there some cold hard facts regarding their trajectory and there's some cold hard facts regarding how they've been able to, you know, in the, in the even in the small instances of being able to create value, um, how they've been able to Change certain lives and perceptions in the in, in our continent. So I don't think there's any one answer to it, but I do think there's a, there's 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 a contrarian view that asks us to be able to think about it more than just a transaction and consider it in the the entirety of what that means going forward. And 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 to your point, there's a lot that's going to be taken for granted in the short term, but it's going to real, reveal itself in the long term. And a big part of that has to be with how they've gone to market right now.
1: Yeah, and I, to me, I think oversimplification is the enemy here. I don't think there's a binary answer to to the question of is Jumia something to be excited about or in fact is this an African success or not but um I do think you know everyone listening to this would do well to sort of take in a diversity of input on this matter. Uh, I know there are people in in Nigeria specifically I've observed on 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 social media who appear to me as taking exception to any sort of criticism of this deal. Perhaps it might come across as people trying to undermine the the role of sort of quote-unquote local Nigerians in the success story or the legitimacy of what is definitely um, a country on the roll or the the strength of an ecosystem. And I don't think it's as simple as that, nor should it be reduced to that. I do think, however, that as we're having this discussion here, this discussion should scale into our organizations. And to whoever's listening, that's the challenge, folks. Let's not make it one color here, folks, because at the end of the day, anything with African on it does affect us, for better or for worse, does affect us positively or negatively. And we, and it's, you know, our role to sort of factor in on the discussion. So, I mean, I'll leave it there uh, and obviously invite our listenership to factor in on this. What do you think of Jumia? It is a thing, clearly, in many respects, a knockout success. Eyebrows can remain raised and perhaps we must remain critical of what they will or won't become or will or can become. But in the meantime, what do you think? Give us a shout on social. Let us know what you think on this matter. Jumi is clearly a thing. What kind of thing is it to you? Uh, Give us a shout at African Roundup on Twitter, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, drop us an email if you'd like to give us a full view uh, or even drop us a voice note. uh, Hello at Roundup.com is where you can do that. So. Moving swiftly along to the two sort of blockchain slash crypto related issues, uh, questions that I've brought to the table today in specific honor of our guest here on the show. Um, Simon, thanks for being on the show once again. I have to ask, is blockchain technology as false as we've been led to believe? An article published in the MIT Technology Review by a certain Mike Orkut. Uh, published on the nineteenth of February, twenty nineteen. It's entitled "Once Hailed as Unhackable, Blockchains Are Now Getting Hacked." I've I've read this article and it's left me rather perplexed.
0: Um, it, I, I read the article and and quite frankly, I can't believe that they they carried that on the site because this is a, a story that that somebody writes every few months about the blockchain and it's been thoroughly debunked um, to try and kind of contain it because we now have thousands of blockchains all over the world. If you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, which is still probably the only one that matters, not because I think the others are bad ideas or don't have a snowball's chance in hell, etc., it's just the only successful deployment of blockchain technology to date is is Bitcoin. And if if somebody disagrees with me on that, I'm I'm fully open to being challenged. I'd love to hear of another blockchain project that has widespread adoption and has has, has shown some value in the mainstream. Ethereum will probably be the next one. I'm a massive fan of it, but but right now, Bitcoin's the only one that matters. Um, the Bitcoin blockchain has never been hacked, period, right? We know that because Bitcoin is still here. Um, and we know that because of the dynamics of, of Nakamoto consensus and our proof of work um, works. But if you, if you read the article, the, the author talks about what are called 51% attacks. Um, and basically what that means is, if you want to hack a, a blockchain, for, for lack of a better word, Essentially your only option is to is to either have a computer so powerful that you could disrupt the the consensus algorithm and and no such computer exists. There's a lot of FUD out there about what quantum computing will do to blockchain, but it's all it's all hypothetical right now. But essentially you'd have to control the network. So all of the computers that are mining and sustaining the Bitcoin network, you'd have to control at least 51% of them so that you could submit protocol or other code changes to the network and effectively um, inject transactions or otherwise control it. Um, if you were attacking a network like the internet, you'd probably have to take a, a similar approach. If, if, if your target was taking down the internet um, or controlling it in some way, then you'd have, to, you'd have to sort of run 51% of the hardware that was powering it, I guess. Um, now, there are, there are blockchains that this has happened to. Uh, Ethereum Classic is probably the most famous one. Um, Ethereum Classic was a fork of of Ethereum that had very little support um, and because of that didn't have much hardware uh, assigned to its hash rate and that opened the door for somebody to launch a 51% attack on Ethereum Classic. It's not a hack as such. This isn't a bug. This is a feature because if you think about it, what it means is that if your blockchain project doesn't have sufficient support, it's going to get taken out. I So, so when, when I hear of a... 50 so what, natural selection, of natural natu- selection exactly. kind of thing? Natural selection kind of Exactly. If you wanted to launch a 51% attack on the Bitcoin network, we did some math on this like two years ago, and, and it will be different now because the hash rate on the Bitcoin network is higher than it's ever been. I think that's a story that doesn't get enough airtime, is the Bitcoin network today is bigger than it has been at any point in history. So if you think there was a bubble that burst in 2017, I've got news. But... Um, but I digress. If, if, you were going to, if you were going to attack Bitcoin, you would need more resources, from what we can tell, than, than the Chinese and U.S. governments combined. Because you would have to run probably the most powerful computer network in the world at a cost of millions of dollars an hour for weeks to pull it off. It's just not going to happen so long as Bitcoin has the support that it does. If you've got a smaller blockchain, like Ethereum Classic... Where there's like five people in their parents' bedrooms, or what am I saying, in their parents' basements? <laughs> I don't know what they'd be doing in the in the bedroom with Bitcoin miners. But, but you get my point. Um, running the network, then then you don't need a lot of resources to attack that network. So it's 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 a little bit of a, a Goldilocks porridge story as well. Because if your blockchain project is just getting going and it's really small, there's no economic incentive to hack it because the 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 value I would be stealing is non-existent. There's, it's not worth anything. I'm stealing tokens but, that but, haven't but launched Simon, yet.
1: But Simon, Simon, I feel like we're we're having this discussion. Okay, there's two reasons why this is sort of trending in our world right now. Yeah. One, every other week we're we're fielding. Um, at least Johannesburg is fielding the CEO or founder of a sort of relatively large sort of crypto based startup from typically from the US or from some place like you know Estonia or someplace like that. And why are they here? Because the African continent is definitely leading the world in many respects in terms of adoption of these technologies. And I feel it's actually proponents of these technologies that are to blame for the confusion because of some of the superlative claims they make about its promise and, of course, how important it is that we see to it that it replaces the status quo. And so from that standpoint, um, it's kind of your cousins in this
0: space, Simon, who put us here. Um maybe i i don't i don't know what my relation is to them but but that's probably fair. no i just mean you're, um, a, you're a huge fan
1: of the of the of the technology and i yeah
0: I, and, I, and i say this tongue-in-cheek obviously but, but when I you just say feel, put us put us they- put us here do you, so 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 firstly very little value in the world is is put into the blockchain there, there are very few people in the world a tiny fraction um, of economically active adults that have anything stored on the blockchain so it's not like um, we've convinced the world to, you know, move their entire financial infrastructure over to the blockchain, firstly. But but back to that article, um, f- you know, firstly, he insinuates that, that there's a problem with blockchain because of 51% attacks. I hope I've convinced you that that's not a problem, that's a feature. Um, you know, proof of work, should be able to run that way. You you know, a network should be compromised if it doesn't have sufficient support but is portraying a certain does, amount of value. He also but, does. but hold on. So the other two things yeah. he says is that exchanges have been hacked. Which is of course true, but that has nothing to do with the the blockchain. And the, the blockchain has not been hacked. An endpoint on the network, uh, you know, a MySQL database for all intent and purpose has been hacked. And 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 somebody's managed to steal value that way. There's never been a but successful key, hack on the but, Bitcoin. But that's network. kind of key
1: and that's true, but I guess what I'm saying is, if these ideas are going to mainstream, if they're going to do all the good we hope they can and should do, for the you know the wider world, the the question of how secure stuff being built on top of these networks should be should be I suppose thoroughly examined. Everything from the Lightning Network to exchanges but to that has been. ideas and that are so being pushed. So, but that's what I mean. I, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying I don't know that I I, I, I encounter enough sort of rigor from people right. who are proponents of this stuff. So When I encounter them, it kind of feels like mm-hmm. this is all one-way traffic in terms of how great this is and how potentially awesome it is with no danger.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think anybody who understands what they're talking about is that naive. But – but they are... You'd be surprised, Simon. You'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, then I would challenge you on whether or not they know what they're talking about. Uh, you have to be pretty Fair stupid enough. to think that, 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 that technology is infallible and, and that it's, it's only going to be success after success. You know. Um, that said, we know, and, and I say this with a lot of confidence, that Bitcoin is the most secure computer science project that's ever been created. It's the most robust information network that man has ever conceived of. And that's not my opinion. That is something that some of the world's top computer scientists have have said after looking at Nakamoto consensus and and how the network works. We have never come up with something this secure. Now, if we're going to compare apples with apples, let's compare Bitcoin to our traditional banking infrastructure. You've mentioned 2008 already once in this podcast. So if you think of that as a social hack on the system, (laughs) technology aside, the current financial system is quite fragile. But if you if, if if we if we boil it down to a purely technological discussion, if you're going to even begin to compare your bank's mainframe and its various <laughs> pieces of infrastructure in terms of security to Bitcoin, like there is just absolutely no competition. We are literally comparing you know ox carts with Ferraris here. If if we're going to suggest that our current banking system has better security measures in terms of its information technology than Bitcoin, and and part of the reason for that is. It's something that Andreas Antonopoulos refers to as the sewer rat phenomenon. He says traditional, traditional banking infrastructure is like a bubble boy. So, you know, the, the old story from, you know, I think it was the 70s of the kid in the bubble who is allergic to everything. And if any air gets into the bubble, he's, he's basically going to die from an allergy <laughs> almost instantly. And his immune system is compromised because he's never been exposed to the world. That's what our current banking infrastructure is like the ledger system at your bank is a bubble boy, right? It needs layers and layers of security to keep the outside world away from it because if the outside world gets in inside, uh, it gets close enough to it, it's going to fall over in seconds. Bitcoin is is antithetical to that. Bitcoin is like a sewer rat, and this is Andreas's metaphor once again, that's running around and getting every sickness in the sewer. Um, it's had Ebola 500 times and its immune system has built up You know, a resistance to absolutely everything imaginable because Bitcoin's been built transparently and out in the public as an open source project. So we've had 10 years of Bitcoin, and while, you know, only a small fraction of the world's value is stored on the blockchain, there's sufficient value there that if anybody was going to hack the blockchain directly, it would have happened. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. There may well be some massive flaw that, that hundreds of computer scientists and cryptographers have somehow managed to overlook that somebody will exploit in the future. But we know from the last 10 years of running the Bitcoin network that this thing is as robust as it gets. We also have to um, make a point in terms of extrapolation layers because w- when we talk about the blockchain directly, um, you 're talking about uh, encryption algorithms that have been tried in the wild and and essentially you're you're talking about mathematics. so everything we know about mathematics tells us that the encryption used in Nakamoto consensus is solid. We know that two plus two is to for the last billion times we 've checked, <laughs> and it probably will for the next billion times So arguing against encryption is a little bit like arguing against you know the law of gravity um, in terms of predictability. But once you extrapolate on top of the blockchain and you look at, at things like smart contracts that are being built on top of it using essentially frameworks and open to human interpretation and, and error in the code, that's a completely different discussion. So that article, again, that started this entire discussion of ours, uh, the third point he makes is about smart contracts and vulnerabilities in smart contracts, as if you know, no human being had ever made an error in an English language contract between two people before either. Uh, the moment human beings are taking a tool and using it, then then you know we're we're open up to the kind of errors that that human minds inject into things. So yes, you can write a smart contract on Ethereum, and if you make an error in the contract, somebody can exploit that. And of course, there's the famous story of the DAO, where seventy five million dollars worth of value was was stolen because the smart contract had a problem with it. But again. That's the kind of the extrapolated layers on top of the blockchain where human beings are making stupid errors. The blockchain itself is a fairly simple instrument, right, that's running on very predictable mathematical algorithms that have been running for the last 10 years without being compromised. So... To argue that human error is the problem. So I'm
1: I'm going to interrupt you just briefly because I need to let Musa go. He's got like a (laughs) board meeting because he's a boss like that. (laughs) Our challenge is getting started this uh, this afternoon actually um, threw us out a bit. So Musa, we're going to bid you farewell. Simon, you and I have a few more minutes left in the show. Very rarely do I interact with people as passionate about blockchain tech and as knowledgeable about it who are also as nuanced and perhaps honest about what could go wrong, however unlikely. And why? So in this case, I mean, again, you're bowing to the notion that anything with a human hand in it could potentially suffer as a result. Anytime we get involved, especially when we try and integrate this legacy system we're trying to keep alive, chances are very good things are going to get broken, hacked, broken into, and that kind of thing. And my concern Is a lot of the founders we see landing on our shores, sort of whipping up a frenzy about blockchain and and Bitcoin and and crypto in general, aren't as nuanced in their breakdown of how great their own platforms are and how potentially problematic they might be if things of what you're discussing could happen. If you understand what I mean?
0: Yeah, and, and they have their own agendas and their own reasons to do that. I mean, look, if we step away from blockchain and zoom out a little bit and look at the history of computing, every few years we get a new catchphrase, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence or, um, you know, t- to get really boring about it, um, we-, we had um, service-orientated architecture, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and then that gives analysts the fodder that they need to go out and, and do their job, right? So so these terms that the world is talking about because it's a buzzword, but don't fully understand, get turned into marketing material for personal or corporate agendas. Thank you. And so the Oracles, the SAPs, the IBMs of the world, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the they love this stuff because they, now they get to take this and interpret it for their clients and it's very lucrative to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, uh, you know, there's there's some nuance in terms of how their message is different, but the agenda is different. Um, I'm looking at pure, purely as a, a, I wouldn't even say as a technologist, as an anthropologist um, and thinking about how it compares to the thing it was designed to replace. I mean, t- to compare the, the existing financial system and its infrastructure to, to what's happening in the crypto world, uh, I've already used the analogy of ox carts and Ferraris. It, it, it's quite ridiculous. Firstly, firstly, you know Everything that happens on the Bitcoin blockchain, and, and I always bring the discussion back to Bitcoin because there, there are thousands of crypto projects that aren't all the same, and none of them have been even remotely as successful as Bitcoin. But if we look purely at Bitcoin, every transaction on the network happens out in the open. That's not true of our existing financial system, and that's already a big fundamental opportunity to introduce more transparency, more accountability, more security into the financial world. Uh, yes, there's a lot that gets traded behind the scenes on Bitcoin, on extrapolated systems and settled later. But we've got a very robust settlement layer that the world so, could be banking on, that so do Simon, a much better I, job than the dollar is doing right now as a reserve currency, for example, where there's zero transparency. American politicians can print more of the stuff whenever they feel like it, like they did with quantitative easing. And where most of us just don't, nev- never mind not having a say in the system, we don't even get to see how the system's working.
1: So then I have to ask you as a sort of investor in the space, as a founder in the space, shouldn't he then regard with great suspicion proprietary moves and platforms built on top of these frameworks?
0: Oh, Because they pretty what they much are.
1: undermine almost everything that you've said. I mean, how can I trust a Binance or a Coinbase or a Luno or, or Paxful or really any… Anything built on top of this because again, it infuses the human element. It starts to find clever ways to create proprietary sort of advantages on top of what
0: was created for anything but I, I kind of agree. I mean the answer to why you should trust a Luno is the same as, as why you should trust your bank, right? They've been in business for X amount of years, they've been audited, they comply with regulation, they haven't lost anybody's money so far. You know, it's 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 all this the same things that power human trust. But when we talk about trusting the settlement layer, trusting the bitcoin network. That's a very different discussion because what you're trusting there is mathematics. It's open source code that anybody who's able to query it can go and query and see for themselves what's happening in the system. Go and query any transaction that's ever happened on the network back to the first one when when Satoshi Nakamoto sent Hal Finney some bitcoin in 2009. Everything subsequently is securely immutably stored in a transparent ledger that anybody can take a look at. So When you say, I trust the Bitcoin network, the beautiful thing about that statement is there isn't a human being implied in it. Um, You're basically trusting your own ability to vet (laughs) the technology. Um, Am I right
1: not to trust the Lightning network, for example, built on top of that?
0: So so personally, I don't think so because I I know a lot of people from the Lightning team and I've looked at the technology myself and we've done a lot of work with it. So I have the knowledge to say that I trust the Lightning team and I trust the, the technology implicitly. But you should never take my word for it. You shouldn't take anybody's word for it. You should go and find out for yourself. I mean, this is the same as as medicine or, or, or any of the sciences. You should never, ever, ever believe anybody without going and verifying yourself. Our motto in the, in the Bitcoin industry is don't trust, verify. Don't trust me. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to Andile. Don't trust Luno. Go and find out for yourself. Verify for yourself whether or not this is as it is being portrayed, whether it works the way that you think it does. You know? So give, give um, the average
1: listener of this show a framework for for doing something like that, because not all of us are as knowledgeable about this as you are. And certainly most of us don't have the sort of firsthand sort of front row seat access to to developments yeah. in this space. So um, I hear all that. But at the end of the day, it does turn into a sort of trust game a la Theranos you know, we see the black box in front of us. It says Ed- Edison on the side. We like the founder. She's got a deeper voice. That's kind of weird, but that's kind of cool because she's, you know, <laughs> she wears black. She likes Steve Jobs. She, she looks up to Thomas Edison, who, you know, who was kind of dodgy, but ultimately great because he succeeded in many respects. And being human, that's what we do, right? We, we apply very subjective criteria to determining what we should trust and why. So mm. in the context of all that... I hear everything you've said, and let's assume it to be true because I happen to like you, Simon, and I happen to to trust your your judgment. But how do I apply what you're telling me that I shouldn't trust you and that I should check it out myself? What's what framework well, can you it's, offer?
0: It's plain critical thinking, right? Um, is is the first thing, um, and understanding a little bit about how your own mind works and. I mentioned I'm I'm reading Richard Feynman's book at the moment, and and he's one of his famous quotes I love is you shouldn't fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool, right? You can convince yourself of anything because you have heuristics and biases that we've evolved over you know millions of years. But so it starts with critical thinking. It starts with, as I said, not trusting anybody and, and figuring it out for yourself. And then, unfortunately, comes the hard part, which is going and learning about these things if if you have an interest. So I'd suggest a good place to start. Um, there's a fantastic engineer who's been involved in the book oh, space. Oh, I thought you were going to suggest
1: your own book, bro. You missed the opening. No, you I missed mean, the look, opening. No, by all
0: means, go and read my book. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried to do a good job of explaining it. The book's called In Math We Trust. It's available on Amazon as an ebook. It's also in, at all good bookstores. Um, but, but, but somebody who's, who's very close to what's happening in the space is, is Jamison Lopp. Um and, and the reason I, I like his website is because unlike my book, he can log into it and change it. So as things change, he he updates his um his work. But if you go to lop.net, allop.net, um and you'll see at the top there's a, a link to Bitcoin resources, it says. Um, and if you go to that site, he maintains a set of resources for anybody who wants to learn more that is second to none. Um, there's everything from online courses to an article called Explain Bitcoin Like I'm Five on Medium, which is beautiful, um, to comics, to documentaries about how Bitcoin is being used um, in places like Ethiopia and Venezuela where it's literally saving lives. Um, and and, and I, would, I would suggest to anybody who has an interest or who has any doubt in their mind to go and engage with these resources and, and to learn for themselves. Well,
1: We're going to leave this one there.
0: With what little time we have left, let's talk about the third
1: thing that we wanted to touch on. Uh, I have in front of me a Forbes article about a certain Dawn Dixon. She is the founder of a company called Popcom. And uh, according to this headline... She's the first black woman to raise over $1 million in a secure token offering. I first encountered her story actually listening to a podcast called The Pitch, which is produced by Gimlet Media. And um, I remember her being torn to shreds by the VCs on that show. It's basically like a, a, a sort of podcast version of Shark Tank. And they ripped her to shreds. She obviously, she sounded really knowledgeable. She, she's got a background in tech and great pedigree as far as founders go Um, with this idea to revolutionize vending machines and put them in a position where they're collecting more data than they currently do because apparently at this point they're just dumb machines. And so this idea just got panned by those VCs. And I remember the follow-up show to that particular episode because they do a follow-up sometimes on on that show. She had indicated that she was going to go, you know, crowdsource the money. And I'm thinking, oh, kiss of death. It was round about the decline of the sort of ICO craze and and everyone's just going, everything feels scammy in the space. This is not going to work. And it really felt like, Uh, this was going to be the end for her. But no, here she is, 2,117 investors later and an oversubscribed waitlist with massive commitments. 1,070 million she's raised uh, for this business. Uh, She claiming, of course, quote, according to this article, when they don't give us a seat at the table, we bring our own. Is this as glorious uh, an announcement or a, a sort of revelation as one is tempted to think and feel just off the bat of reading this article?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we step away from this individual case, um, you know, I, I don't know too much about um, Dixon and, and her business. It, it, it seems great. But the idea that, that you can now raise money in this way is beautiful and, and one of the biggest gifts that, that cryptocurrency has, has given us. It's early days. We, we don't know how well this is going to do in time. But you know, you you can launch. Of course, there were ICOs um, that that sort of started this craze two years ago uh, when they really picked up steam. They'd been around for a little bit longer than that. And now we have this idea of a secure token offering, which is a legitimised ICO. So it's regulated and it's it's well understood as a security, and it plays within the framework of the law. But the idea that on both sides you could you can be an entrepreneur anywhere in the world now. You can be sitting, you know, in the middle of the Kalahari Desert. You can be sitting in Lagos. You can be sitting, you know, in in Patagonia. It doesn't matter where you are. You can raise money from a global network of investors quickly, securely. Uh, I mean you know we 've heard these stories of i c o s where hundreds of millions of dollars were raised literally in seconds, and on the flip side of the coin, you can be an investor from anywhere you can you can be a venture capitalist with any amount of money now you you may have you know the equivalent of five dollars in ethereum, and that 's all you need to start your journey as a venture capitalist now You can be in your bedroom anywhere in the world, and if you find a company like this one that you like and you want to invest in, you can do that so I think it's a beautiful thing that's happening. You know, if if, if I read her comments this founder uh, Dawn Dixon, she, she you know, it it sounds like she was she was struggling with the traditional world of of venture capitalists and uh, venture capitalism and funding and she took matters in her own hands and, and used this new platform, this new technology to to raise a million dollars herself, more power to her, man, and more power to us. This is this is really why I get so um, worked up about this technology is because it enables so many great things for people who are disintermediated in the system before. Or Definitely disenfranchised, right. rather. Disintermediated is the wrong word. But
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do, I do know what you mean. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, she spent a lot of her time pitching rooms of people that really didn't mirror her background or understand where she was coming from. She's black, she's a woman, uh, pitching mostly in, you know, in, in the US where it's mostly pale male, elderly folk who, who who hold the purse strings. And of course, bucking that trend by going, hey, don't need your money, I can, I can get back by my peoples. I, I'm glad that you're mostly positive about this development because now I feel I can almost... Let my stomach out or you know, exhale, on, <laughs> you know, because I, you know, I'm always so tense about these developments because I'm like, how excited to be. I don't want to be irresponsible, even with the platform we have. We have policymakers who rely on this platform to to get a nuanced view on what to care about and how excited to be about certain things. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to promote a pump and dump, which incidentally is one of the harsher things I heard said about Jumia. But sorry, I, I'm dragging an old story back in. Uh, but no, I, I don't want to be part of, of a trend. I don't want to be part of sort of promoting a narrative that isn't properly nuanced and that leaves people in danger um, and maybe poorly informed about the potential rubs alongside the pros, you know. So in this case, mm. what should we look out for if this were to become a mainstream trend, which I think it's on track to do here? Um, given this particular story. I, I can imagine founders all over the continent who will argue that they've experienced exactly what this woman uh, experiences here. Um, all the expats or repats at very best um, get all the money because they're they're well-connected. Most of the VC capital flowing into our ecosystem, some people consider it improperly incentivized and really just flowing from abroad we have an emerging but certainly not what i'd consider an incredibly great sort of angel investment uh situation and for most people the friends and families round is not even a thing right so Mm. you know speak to listeners of this podcast who relate with that reality founders across you know across the world um Mm. in the diaspora on the continent who look at this and, and think hey I could engineer this um, to back my, my, my venture, yeah. speak to those kind of people and let them know why or why not. Are there any dangers we need to be aware of as a, an ecosystem? What should, what sh- should we have a framework for, for identifying, you know, charlatans because along with great, potentially great founders like you, I have no idea just, you know, how great Popcom is as a company. And, and, you know, I, I really don't, I hope it's a great company and survives into the future and does great things. But, um, it could well fail and or, you know, God forbid, you know, Dixon could be proved a charlatan who who's chilling on a piece somewhere after this whole announcement. Um, but I'm hoping that's not the case. But so what sort of framework do you think we should adopt in ter- in, in terms of trying to, to grapple with this new development and this new wave mm-hmm. that could, I suppose, become a thing?
0: Before I get to that, I, I like that you touched on privilege because that's really what the discussion is about in terms of, of of funding new ventures in in Africa and It's something that that frustrates me because there's there's a narrative around this at the moment and and a group of people that just don't seem to understand that um, just basically how privilege works and and like you said, you know here in Africa and and elsewhere, there are a lot of people who can't go to friends and family to raise a million dollars because their friends and family don't have it. <laughs> um, you know, for various not very cool reasons. So I I always have to kind of hold myself back when I see these guys standing up and going. Oh, I don't understand this privilege discussion. I worked very hard for what I have. Yeah, you worked hard, but but you were able to go to your friends and family and get like a million rand from them to start your company. You were privileged and you were probably lucky. But yes, you worked hard. We'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now we have these new tools, these new platforms, where despite your background, despite your status and your privilege. Um, or lack thereof you can go and and raise money even if you don't have a sort of a, a close network of friends and family that are able to help you out so that so that's exciting but but to get to what you are really asking um yeah. it's the it's the same fundamentals as with anything else man my my two big rules because i often get asked by people should i invest in cryptocurrency what should i be thinking about etc and my two rules are firstly never spend money on on gambling that you can't afford to lose so let's just be honest and say that whether you are investing in a company on a stock exchange or a cryptocurrency itself like Bitcoin, or you're putting money into a TSO like like the one we're talking about here, you are gambling. You know, some risks are bigger than others, but they all risk. So don't spend money you can't afford to lose, right, is the first rule. Gotcha. The second rule I've kind of alluded to already is don't put money to things you don't understand. Don't trust. Verify. Go and check this company out. Go and check this lady out if you want to give her money. What's her background? What has she told people? What did she do before this? Um, how is she planning to take this thing to market? It's it's the basics that that are true no matter how you're gambling or where you're putting your money in terms of investing. So so that, that would be my advice is, yeah. yes, TSOs are great. Um, you know – the problem with the ICO space was it was just a free fall. It was the Wild West, and it was just a money grab. And there were so many scams and so many projects pretending to be things that they weren't. But Which is so funny time- because
1: money grab is yet another word that I heard used to describe Jumia. Sorry, I'm dragging an old story back in. Sorry, <laughs> no, just cool. carry on.
0: Carry on. But, but I mean, I also <laughs> love the Steinhoff example because Steinhoff was listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as a totally legitimate company. But… As an investor, if you had really done your homework and gone and unpacked their structure and maybe look at how the money was flowing for that, that, that company globally, I think you would have probably smelled a rat. You know, I didn't go and look yeah. at it myself, so I can't say for sure. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, forget it. so forget about the fact that it's a TSO or it's a Kickstarter campaign or whatever the funding mechanism is, your level of homework should probably be the same if you're going to give money to this undertaking and expect something back in the future. And
1: I feel sufficiently chastised by what you're saying because, in as much as I'm taking the mick out of this Jumia situation and the whole sort of hashtag is Jumia African thing, um, I have to sort of admit here that the reason I love this story and it's on our show is because this woman's black. And <laughs> <laughs> no, really. And, and, and there's a justice complex in me that just vibes with how right it is for her to finally come right on this and, and how invested I've been sort of listening to her and other platforms struggle and fail to to win people over. And, and, even on, you know, it, and even on those podcasts I've heard her speak on, rolling with a lot of things that I sense are true and unjust about why it is that someone in her position has had to struggle so hard for her first million, uh, where other yeah. people just kind of walk into it. And that has nothing, nothing to do with whether or not she's a solid founder in pragmatic terms. She is in charge of a, an actual business. And more importantly, that she is in a position now to engineer return on investment for all the money she's managed to attract mm-hmm. to a venture. And that I think is the pr- pragmatic true north. All of us should be holding pretty much anything that happens in our ecosystem too, regardless of whether it's in the crypto space. Uh, it's listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange or in New York um, as the quote unquote first African unicorn or whatever. Mm. I, I think maybe that's, the, and I'm really glad you you, you sort of just, You've brought it sort of home for us in that regard, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I I so badly want this lady to shoot the lights yeah. out and just blow everyone away. Like more power to her. <laughs> yeah, like um, she she be. She, I wanted to become the
1: Theranos that never was.
0: You <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, but, but listen, the other yeah. thing that I'm excited about is 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 this isn't going to be the first story like this that we hear, you know? Um, no, because no, we now won't. have this these platforms to to enable really anybody to do this anybody is going to and so I'm looking forward to seeing more of her out there because for every one founder like her there's got to be a million kids out there with a dream and an idea and until now as you alluded to the old white guys running venture capital in the States did not want to hear from them but the rest of the world does um, yep. And, yep. and now they have now they have a shot and, and that makes me so happy
1: yeah shout out to her and of course for those of you interested in that uh, particular article by Forbes it's by a certain Brittany Chambers, uh, it's entitled Meet the First Black Woman to Raise Over $1 Million in a Secure Token Offering. So Google that and, and, and seek out the story. Now that I've let my stomach out and, I, and I'm comfortable in, in sort of <laughs> promoting this development, thanks to the capable counsel of Simon Dingle, um, please um, share and share away. Simon, we're going to leave it here for now. Three things clearly is plenty to keep us occupied for over an hour. So I think we're going to keep this format for the next while. You guys can let us know how you feel about that because I know we used to go through upwards of seven to sometimes ten topics per show, but that leaves so little time to actually discuss things to to, to a great amount of detail. And we're kind of solving for that because enough of you have reached out to us to indicate that that might be something we could be doing better whenever we we head into studio. And, and a quick heads up, guys. This show... It's coming out over two months since the last time uh, Musa and I were in studio with a guest. And um, in all likelihood, we're going to be keeping that level of frequency with the in-studio stuff, but... You can totally expect to, to enjoy content on a weekly basis, at least for now, but major changes are, are coming for the better uh, to how we're, we're, we're packaging insights for you and, and delivering value in ways other than being on the mic here sharing important ideas and views. So with all that said, um, all that remains is to thank you, Simon Dingle, for being on the show and to thank our audience. For listening. Uh, Remember, fam, um, it's all going down in Paris at Afrobytes on the 15th of May. Uh, We would love to see you there. Tickets are available now at a crazy 25% discount um, on our very site. So just head to africantechroundup.com forward slash Afrobytes 2019. africantechroundup.com forward slash Afrobytes. That's A-F-R-O-B-Y-T-E-S 2019. And you'll find all the information you need about the event, how you can get your tickets at that incredible discount. Can't wait to see all of you guys in Paris. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Do take care, Africa.